Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wounded Blue Hour. I'm your host, Randy Sutton, a retired police lieutenant, 34 years of police service, the author of A Cop's Life and the soon-to-be-released Rescuing 911, The Fight for America's Safety, and the founder of the Wounded Blue. Wounded Blue is the national assistance and support organization for injured and disabled law enforcement officers. On this show, we talk about all things that concern the health, the welfare, the physical health, the emotional health, and the spiritual health of America's law enforcement community. Thanks for joining me here at the show. And uh, we have a great guest waiting for us in, the, uh, in, the, in his little spot waiting for us. But before we introduce him, I want to do what we call our reality check. And our reality check is... Uh, an, an end of watch um, announcement. And this week, each week, I read the names of the officers who have given their lives in the line of duty the previous week. And unfortunately, this week I have three names to read. The first is Senior Police Officer Trevor Abney of the New Orleans Police Department, Louisiana. Senior Police Officer Trevor Abney succumbed to complications from a gunshot wound sustained on October 30th, 2020. He and his partner were stopped at the intersection of St. Philip Street and Royal Street when a passenger in a passing pedicab opened fire on them without provocation. Officer Abney was struck in the left side of his face and his partner suffered cuts to his arm from the shattered windshield. The subject was apprehended after a foot chase through the French Quarter. He was charged with two counts of attempted murder of a police officer following the initial shooting. Officer Abney was transported to the University Medical Center where life-sustaining measures were performed. Doctors were unable to remove the bullet which remained lodged in his brain and blinded him in the left eye. He succumbed to complications of the wound on April 9th, 2023. Officer Abney was a United States Army War veteran and had served with the New Orleans Police Department for seven years. Senior Police Officer Trevor Abney, New Orleans Police Department, Louisiana, end of watch, Sunday, April 9th, 2023. The next is Reserve Corporal Joseph Johnson of the NISA Police Department in Oregon. Reserve Corporal Joseph Johnson was shot and killed near the intersection of North 3rd and Locust Avenue uh, while making a traffic stop at about 8.20 p.m. He was responding to reports of a violent man damaging property at a home and threatening its occupants. During the response, he encountered the suspect driving away and conducted a traffic stop. The, the subject immediately exited his car and opened fire, fatally wounding Reserve Corporal Johnson before he had a chance to return fire. Subject abandoned his vehicle, fled, on, uh, fled the scene, and was arrested two days later. Reserve Corporal Johnson has served the NISA police for almost five years. He had also served as a corrections officer with the Oregon Department of Corrections for 15 years and was currently working as a civilian employee for the agency. Reserve Corporal Joseph Johnson, NISA Police Department, Oregon. End of watch Saturday, April 15th, 2023. Now, for those of you who don't know, reserve officers are generally unpaid and they volunteer their time. They are trained as police officers. They are certified police officers, but they volunteer their time. That means 
that Reserve Corporal Joseph Johnson died serving for nothing, for free, because of his dedication to his community. Reserve officers throughout the nation are, um, are little understood and little known, but they provide an incredible uh, role to law enforcement, and many departments could not function without them. So it's, uh, it's good to know information like that. The third is Deputy Sheriff Josh Owen, Pope County Sheriff's Office in Minnesota. Deputy Sheriff Josh Owen was shot and killed while he and another deputy attempted to arrest a man for domestic violence on Stroman Street in Cyrus at about 7.30 p.m. Deputies as well as police officers from the Glenwood Police Department and Starbuck Police Department had been dispatched to the house for reports of a domestic violence incident. The officers were attempting to place the man into custody when he opened fire on them. Deputy Owen and the subject were both fatally wounded. The other deputy and Starbuck officer were injured. The incident occurred on Deputy Owen's 44th birthday. Deputy Owen was a Minnesota National Guard Operation Iraqi Freedom veteran, has served with the Pope County Sheriff's Office for almost 12 years. Deputy Sheriff Josh Owen, Pope County Sheriff's Office, Minnesota. End of watch Saturday, April 15th, 2023. Now, these officers each gave their lives in the line of duty serving and protecting. More officers this week suffered gunshot wounds and were injured in the line of duty. Uh, almost every single day, a police officer in America is being shot. And they are facing greater dangers, not just physically, but emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. And that's why this show is dedicated to them. So I'm going to introduce my guest to you. Now, when uh, I talk about how an officer is being shot literally every day, almost every day, um, Officer Adrian De La Garza of the Las Cruces Police Department is a, uh, is a case in point. Uh, let's bring him in. He is a 19-year veteran of the La Cruz, Las Cruces Police Department. He serves as a trainer as well as a police officer. Uh, he has uh, he's um, uh, served, like I said, for 19 years, and he is currently a reconstruction expert on uh, traffic accidents. And he is now also speaking publicly about the effects of the shooting and the uh, and the uh, incident itself. So, Adrian, thanks so much for joining me here at the Wounded Thank Blue you, Hour. Great. So, okay, Thank you for me on. Um, Adrian, you and I met after you were, after your shooting, and there's been you know it's, it's you were you were shot in 2021. We're we're not talking yes. about like a, a long period of time. If you would, let's go back even before that. Let's talk about your career with the Las Cruces Police Department and what it was that, that um, inspired you to become a police officer in the first place. Uh, actually, what inspired me, my dad was a police officer. I lived in Mexico uh, growing up, and my dad was actually a cop in Juarez, uh, Mexico. So um, after he passed away, I was about nine years old. I moved to the United States. I moved to Las Cruces, New Mexico. 
and that was just always a dream of mine of being a police officer, kind of following my in my dad's footsteps. Fantastic. So you uh, you accomplished that. Now was the yes. was the Las Cruz? Did you join Las Cruces PD because that was your hometown department, or did you have a specific um, desire to join? this particular agency or did you look at other agencies as well? Um, like growing up, I, I knew a lot of police officers from this department. So this is like, I was a department that I wanted to be with. And I never really considered any other department, but this one. Okay. So you had, did you, did you have some previous uh, friendships with, with law enforcement personnel from Las Cruces and did they encourage you to join the department? Yes. Actually, uh, one of my neighbors was a cop, and when I turned 19, that was like the eligible age to uh, apply for the police department. He actually showed up to my house and gave me a, an application to fill out and told me to turn it in because they were uh, accepting cadets at the time. So I filled it out, turned it in, and, and I got in with the police department. All right, so let's talk about your training. Um, you got on at a very early age. Talk about the academy training that you received. Yeah, so academy, I started when I was 19 years old. I graduated uh, when I was 20. Uh, but throughout my career, uh, you know, I've taken numerous classes. You know, I've always been into uh, advancing my training. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, advanced handgun courses, uh, rifle courses. Um, I did SWAT basic. I was really interested in uh, being a SWAT team uh, member at the time. So I tried to do all that type of stuff, um, really big into the physical fitness. That's why I became a, a PT instructor for the, the academy. And um, it's pretty much like all the, the training that I've done. Um, I became a, an EVOC instructor, you know, driving instructor for the academy and for the police department. Um, also, I uh, went to, uh, it's called BSR, it's up in West Virginia, and they taught us how to do the pit maneuver, uh, be instructors for, for EVOC, and then right at, shortly after that, I became a motorcycle instructor as well for the police department. So you've had, you've had uh, a, a lot of training. You're, uh, you're, much of this training you, you did voluntarily. You, the department yes. didn't say, hey, we're sending you to this training. This is because you're involved, you like to improve yourself and you're dedicated to your to your profession that's really what it comes yes. down to okay so let's let's move on to the night that changed your life um let's talk about you were involved in a, in a fatal shooting in which you were also um critically injured uh when you were shot let's talk let's talk about that particular evening what led up to it and and if you would fill us in on the incident itself so this was on february 4th of 2021 um actually i was i was here at work i had just finished my lunch uh, i usually go to the gym and work out for my lunch break i just gotten ready i was back in the traffic office and that's when i heard um, everything over the police radio that a state police officer had been shot. Um, it was nearby, the, the, the city's, it's called Deming. So it's in between Deming and Las Cruces. So it's about 15, 20 minute drive from where I'm at. 
they had given us the information that the suspect was coming towards Las Cruces, uh, headed toward, towards uh, the city that I work for. Um, since I am a traffic officer, you know, I have a motorcycle um, and I also have a, a police uh, Chevy Camaro. Uh, but with our policy, you know, we can't get involved in any type of pursuits or anything on motorcycles, so I jumped in the Camaro. Um, started coming up with a plan, like what's the fastest route to get there to uh, I-10 where the suspect was coming from. So I chose that route and I, I got there pretty quickly. Uh, once I got to the Interstate 10, uh, there were numerous officers from state police, one officer from Las Cruces Police Department, and the Sheriff's Department were all involved in a pursuit with the suspect. They were chasing a white and colored Chevy pickup truck long bed with a headache rack. So when I was on the highway, I was trying to figure out where to position my vehicle. I was going to set up spike strips. But I'm not sure if the officers just didn't call out the right location, or maybe I didn't hear it right on the police radio, but uh, the suspect ended up passing right in front of me and started shooting at my vehicle. So it kind of caught me by surprise. And that's when uh, I told myself, uh, it's time to get to work, turn on my uh, lights and sirens, and immediately went after the suspect and actually became the, the lead vehicle uh, at this time. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to stop you right there because I want the, the viewing and listening audience to know a little bit about the police procedures for pursuits, yeah. okay? So yes. um, there's, al there's always a primary officer, a primary uh, uh, officer in the pursuit, which is actually the, the, the main individual who, who is uh, involved in this pursuit. And then there's usually a secondary uh, a minimum of one secondary, and and some policies, you know, limit the number of of pursuing officers. What was the situation with this particular pursuit after you became the primary? Yeah, so, so for our policy, you know, we're only uh, allowed to have two officers in our in our pursuits, and unless a supervisor authorizes to add more, yeah, depending on the type of crime, the severity of what's going on. But with this one, you know, they authorize more officers to be involved because uh, at this time we already had gotten information that the state police officer um, had passed away from from his gunshots from this suspect okay so you're you're now chasing a murder suspect the murder of a police officer you're the you're the primary and there's how many units with you do you remember uh, I don't recall the exact number but I would say there was like at least nine or ten right behind me Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I can, I can imagine. All right, go ahead and continue from there, please. Yeah. So I, I get involved in the pursuit and lights and sirens are on and I was able to catch up to them pretty quickly. Um, so I made the decision to go ahead and to pit them right away just to, to end this chase. Um, All right. I need to stop you again. I need, I need to stop you once again. Pit maneuver. Explain what a pit maneuver is for, uh, for the audience. So the easiest way I can describe it is, uh, so in the police vehicle, you're, you're coming up on the, uh, the suspect. So on, on this one, I was getting on the, uh, the passenger side. So you get just deep enough to like where the rear bumper is and you're applying a little bit of pressure. You do a quarter turn into the suspect. And what you're doing is you're causing him to break traction in the rear tires and you're causing him to spin out. That way you can try to get the vehicle stopped the, the, the next vehicle behind me, the, the next officer kind of like blocks him in. 
Okay, so this is the maneuver that we use to uh, to effectively stop the suspect, fleeing suspect. Okay, so uh, what's what does PIT stand for? Uh, precision intervention technique. Some people, and in some jurisdictions, it's also called a pursuit intervention technique. But yeah. it's a, yeah, it, it's it's called different things, but it means the same. But it's also a very dangerous maneuver. I mean, in in yes. essence, you are you are having a controlled crash with the suspect at a high speed, and uh, and at depending on the speed, isn't this also considered a possible use of deadly force? Yeah. So normally, anything over forty five miles an hour is considered deadly force uh, when you're trying to do a pit maneuver. When I was coming up on the suspect, we were probably doing about ninety miles an hour. I was trying to do the, the first pit maneuver. That's okay. So you're you're you've already made a decision that deadly force is an option here because of course he's wanted for uh, for murder of a police officer. So you're you're legally justified to do this, but still to make that decision, it requires a great deal of skill and also is a very can be a very risky maneuver for you. But you made the decision to do it. Go ahead and, and continue with the story. Yeah, so when I'm coming up on his uh, right rear side, on the passenger side, um, on these Chevy trucks, that has like a little window that was actually opened. So as soon as I was going in for the pit maneuver, um, he stuck the gun out from that little window. And he actually turned around, and I can see him aiming. And as soon as he, he got to like around the area of my head, he started uh, firing several rounds into my car. So then, you know, I back, backed off a little bit. And I was able, unable to do the pit maneuver. Um, I, I backed off, he kept firing. So I was just kind of swerving left and right, you know, just trying to avoid the, the gunshots. And this this happened for approximately about a, a mile, mile and a half. And I kept trying to do the same thing. Every time I tried to go in for a pit, he just kept firing at, at my vehicle and striking it several times. Okay. Um, so. On, at this point, you know, I, I knew I had to change my tactics because um, I mean, the best way I can describe it is like, you know, the suspect, someone's calling the shots here. He already knows like my plan. He knows what I'm trying to do. Every time he fires, you know, I'm backing off. and I'm not doing a, the pit maneuver. So I told myself, you know, like, you know, I got to change my tactics. I'm going in for the pit maneuver. He, he starts firing at me. Just, you got to keep going, you know, like, you know, don't stop. Just just keep going. Uh you know, try to change uh, his tactics and stuff. So I was actually going in for another pit, but at this time there was a, a lot of officers that were on the left side of the highway and the right side. So I knew it wasn't safe to do a pit maneuver because as soon as that vehicle um, spins out of control, it's either gonna hit, you know, uh, the officers that are on the side of the road. So I had to wait till that area clears. Uh, and that's when I heard a bunch of gunfire. Uh, the suspect started shooting at the officers on the side of the road, and then the officers started firing at uh, at the suspect as well. Uh, but they actually struck my car. And they shot out my I was just fire. gonna. I was just gonna say that. So they opened fire on on a, on the vehicle that you are literally just feet from. Yeah. So they struck my left front tire, and that actually caused my tire to go flat. My, my dash started beeping. So when I looked at the dash, it said I had zero PSI on my left front tire. 
so I knew this chase wasn't going to last very long. Uh, I don't know if it was just like the adrenaline going, but my car felt normal. So I was like, you know what? You got to keep going, you know, like keep chasing this guy. So finally, once, you know, I passed all the officers, I made the decision. You know, I took off my seatbelt. I was like, all right, it's time to get to work. I'm trying to, uh, it's time to stop this guy. And actually, I went in for the pit. The pit was successful. Um, I had to change. I had to change it up a little bit compared to like the way I, I I teach the class. So normally when you do a pit maneuver, you uh, like, you know, let's say myself, I'm the lead vehicle, I'm the one doing the pit. You pass the suspect and then the next vehicle from behind is the one that kind of takes that spot where I was at. And you kind of, myself, I would have to do a U-turn and kind of come back to where the suspect is at. But all the officers behind me were uh, uh, sheriff's deputies. They don't train the pit, so I told myself, you know, that I'm pretty sure they don't know what to do. Um, and I, I knew I was kind of behind the power curve too, because, you know, the suspect's already shooting at me. I know I, I got to, I'm pretty much going to be behind the power curve if, if I keep driving forward. You know, they say I, I stop, I get out of my car, um, you know, he's going to be firing towards my back. So, you know what, you know, I, I got to, I got to come up with a better plan. So I said, you know what, just, just stick to him. So I, I, last second, I swerved to the right kind of bumped them a little bit I told myself you know just get out of the car as soon as as soon as possible and just start firing into that back window you know don't give this guy a chance to get out and start firing at you but uh what caught me by surprise is when you know I was thinking all this we, we came to a complete stop the suspect was already out way before like the truck even stopped so as I was exiting my my patrol vehicle he was already standing in front of my like the front of my bumper and uh, all I saw was just like the gun pointing at me. So I fired back and we both hit each other. Uh, he struck me in the arm and my right arm, which is my, my shooting shooting arm. And I struck the suspect as well. Um, I was kind of walking backwards at the time. I don't know if I just tripped on my on myself or what happened, but I ended up falling on the ground. Uh, that was a pretty scary moment right there. Like, you know, I thought that I was screwed you know, falling to the ground. So the option that I chose is uh, to put my hands back on the on the gun. I rolled over to my side and I was actually just gonna shoot out his feet. Uh, but as soon as I did that, I saw him walk backwards, go back to the front of my car. So I knew exactly where he was at. So I, I got a, uh, I stood back up, got on one knee and started firing between like my car and where the door was open. And I just kept uh, firing center mass right there but the suspect wasn't really reacting to anything. And finally, like after a couple more uh, shots, the suspect turned and started running away from me. So I, I went after him and just kept firing until uh, the magazine ran out, reloaded. And by then uh, I realized, you know, he was already, he was already dead. So I took a deep breath, just trying to calm myself down. And as soon as I took the deep breath, that's when uh, the pain just was instant. I knew uh, something something bad had happened to me. Did you and, realize um, that this? Did you realize prior to this that you had been hit, or because I knew of the... I was hit? I felt mm -hmm. it, but I just didn't feel any pain at the time. Um, not until like it was over with. So it was about ten seconds later, and then my arm just stopped working completely. Um, I even tried holstering it. And I couldn't holster the gun. Um, I, I, it was weird because. Um, it wasn't really like my arm that was hurting. It was like the whole right side of my body, like even like my face, my arm, my leg, everything was hurting. 
So I was kind of confused. I didn't, I didn't know exactly where I was hit. I was kind of thinking maybe I got hit multiple times. Cause I, didn't, I didn't have like a specific area that, that was hurting. So I kind of backed off a little bit, let the other officers take over, like handcuffing the suspect and everything. And one of my coworkers um, actually came up to me and was asking me if I was all right. And I told him no. I told him my arm wasn't working and uh, he had to help me get my gun and holster it for me. And that's when everybody just crowded around me and just started taking everything off and put a chest seal on my back and then on my arm and everything. Put a chest seal on. So the, the, the bullet entered the, the front of your body, but it exited through your back. Yes. And we're, we're, I want to talk a little more, a little bit more about this injury, uh, but I have to take a quick break and then we'll come back okay. and, and we'll talk a little bit more about this. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. AmericaOutloud.com. If you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought, working hard to earn your trust for seven incredible years and counting. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. One Nation Coffee. One Nation Coffee, patriotic, uh, veteran-owned, uh, very, very good coffee. I w actually went down and visited their roasting facility and met with the folks down there, uh, John and his crew, and they are amazing people. The coffee is delicious. You order it online. They bring it right to your house. You can get the ground coffee. You can get beans. I like to grind my own. They've got uh, also got these... Uh, you know, the, the containers that you put in your 
Kerrig or whatever that thing is called. So um, One Nation Coffee. Go to OneNationCoffee.com. Order your coffee, and uh, you'll get great coffee, and you'll be supporting uh, a patriotic company that supports the Wounded Blue. So uh, go to OneNationCoffee.com. So before I bring Adrian back, uh, I want to tell you about, uh, you know, everything that we do on this show is to uh, is, is positive for law enforcement. And I want to tell you about a, a, a company that is doing some really amazing stuff for the safety of law enforcement officers. It's called OfficerPrivacy.com. And I was introduced to this concept by Pete James, the, the owner of the company who's a retired law enforcement officer who, who came to realize how much information is available on the internet about you and your family. So what he, what he has done is created a company that goes into the internet and does all kinds of incredible searches and removes information about you. Um, there was 30, in, in my case, there were 36 references to where I live. Well, I, that's pretty uncomfortable for me. And so uh, there, it's not an expensive proposition. Uh, Officerprivacy.com uh, is staffed by all uh, former law enforcement or active duty law enforcement. So the people that are actually doing the work are people that are that are you know your brothers and sisters so if you're a law enforcement officer or have been you want to take a look at this go to officerprivacy.com see who they are see what they do and uh and contact them this is something that you owe to yourself to your family to get that information off the damn internet because we know that there are people out there that are actively looking for a way to track you and then, uh, you know, the, this day and age, we cannot be too careful. So go to officerprivacy.com. Tell them Randy sent you. They'll know who I am. So I'm going to also talk about um, a, uh, an incredible training conference that the Wounded Blue has coming up. It's called the Third Annual National Law Enforcement Survival Summit. If you are law enforcement... You want to be there. It's going to be September 26th through the 29th in Las Vegas at the fabulous Ahern Hotel. This is an incredible training conference. Uh, every aspect of surviving a law enforcement career, physically, tactically, emotionally, psychologically, mentally, fiscally, uh, relationships, spiritually, and besides that, we have a lot of fun because there's entertainment involved. It is not expensive. It's 295 bucks. That includes your breakfast and your lunch and your entertainment. It is a conference that if you're a cop, this is the one you want to go to. Go to your training coordinator. Go to your chief. Beg, borrow, or steal your way into this or pay for it yourself. You know, you owe it to yourself to uh, have every tool at your disposal to... Uh, to survive your career. So go to uh, thewoundedblue.org. That's thewoundedblue.org. And get your registration uh, filled out. 
and make sure you get your spot because we limit the number of spots for this conference. Go to thewoundedblue.org. Let's bring in Adrian back into the into the studio. Adrian, thanks for waiting. All right, so now you have just been shot. Um, you are in the middle of a critical incident. You have not only been shot but returned fire and killed your killed the suspect that shot you. This is a very, there, there is no more a dynamic situation than where you are right now. So explain how the events went from that point. Uh, so the highway was completely blocked off because of the pursuit and the shooting and everything. So an ambulance couldn't get to me. So one of the supervisors made the decision to get one of the, the police units and just throw me in there and then take me to the nearest hospital. So that's what they did. They threw me in the passenger seat of the, the cop car. One of my friends, one of the coworkers drove me straight to the hospital. They had informed the hospital that you know, an officer had been shot and um, he was on his way to the hospital. So when I got there, like the whole medical team was already ready to go. All the nurses were standing there, all the doctors. You know, it was, it was a really good feeling just having everybody there being ready for me and stuff. Okay, so you don't you don't know the extent of your own injuries at this point? Nah, at this time, no. Um, it, it was kind of weird because uh, I was actually standing when they were taking everything off. You know, they took off my vest, my shirt, uh, my undershirt, and I could see all the blood coming down my, my arm, so I, I knew it was my arm. And I was actually holding on to uh, one of my friends, and he's like, hey, like, you know, you got a gunshot to your back. And I was like, it doesn't make sense. And when I looked over, I can see like the blood coming out of my back. So I thought one of the, the deputies behind me is the one that shot me. Oh boy. So I, I, I had you know a lot of different feelings going on at the, at the time. I was scared, pissed off. I was like, man, I got shot by a suspect and a cop. And I was like, man, like, this is horrible. <laughs> but I didn't find out until once I got to the hospital that, you know, the, from the bicep, because my arm was straight out when I was shooting. So I went in through my bicep went through my armpit, armpit and then straight out the back. So that's when they told me, you know, there's an entrance one in the bicep and an exit one in the back. So once I heard that, I was like, okay, it was like a huge stretch release. So like, All right, you know, I didn't get shot by a cop. It made me feel a lot better after that. <laughs> At least I just got the shot by a bad guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, the scary thing, though, is, uh, you know, I was, I was trying to be pretty calm. You know, I didn't want to, like, freak out anybody. So I was trying to be pretty calm and then the the, the doctor just walks in like I can tell she's panicking she's like you know we got to get you for x-rays uh, I think the bullet struck your lung and I was like no like I'm alright you know I'm breathing pretty good she's like no I think it struck your lung so as soon as she said that like I had a hard time breathing and I was like oh my god I, I think it did strike the lung or oh, something boy. And so like you know she caused me to panic I was like oh my god and like I was like hyperventilating and you know was, my mind was just playing tricks on me at the time and once I did the x-rays, and she told me, okay, you know, I just barely missed your lung and stuff. And after that, like, my nor my breathing was back to normal and stuff. So it's kind of weird how that stuff works. You're in the hospital. Now, um, are you married? Uh, girlfriend. So what are you thinking about about your relationship as uh, the injury and your relationship? This is something that, that everyone struggles with. Um do you how do you tell your how do you tell your significant other about this what was your what was your thought process there 
so this is a pretty crazy story. Uh, so my girlfriend, she's a, she's a, a nurse at the ER for the trauma center. It's in El Paso, Texas, which is the next city over from Las Cruces. So Las Cruces, you know, we, they don't have a trauma center here at this hospital. So they were just treating me real quick here. And then they, they were going to load me up to the helicopter and take me to El Paso, Texas to UMT hospital. So I knew she was on call. So I was like, oh man, like I have to like, hurry up and call her now. Oh, no. So I, I, I called her and I was like, hey, you know, I'm okay. Uh, and I was trying to be pretty calm. Told her what happened. You know, of course, you know, she was freaking out and everything and she wanted to talk to one of the nurses. So uh, um, the nurse that, that I was talking to there at, at the hospital where I'm at right now is actually my friend Juan's wife. He was like one of the officers that was with me on scene. So I handed the phone over to her and, you uh, know, she stepped out of the room and I was like, oh man, that's, that's not a good sign. You know, like my injury's pretty bad. She's got to step out of the room. So like I had a bunch of different thoughts going through my head, but she came back, gave me the phone. And she's like, yeah, like my work just called me saying that an officer got shot. I got to come into work. But she's like, you know, I'll be right there. So she was already uh, waiting for me. And, you know, it was really nice too. Cause uh, I knew it was going to be like taken care of pretty good. <laughs> I would say uh, the whole so. Staff, right. The whole staff in El Paso, you know, they were they were all waiting for me to get there and stuff. So I mean, it, it was like a, it was really hard telling her what happened, but at the same time, it was like it was like a huge stress release. I knew uh, I was going to be taken care of. All right, so now let's talk about the aftermath. You're uh, you're 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 in the hospital for how long? Uh, actually, I was only in the hospital for a day. Really? I wasn't. Yeah. Um, the doctors, they wanted to keep me longer, but, uh, since, uh, you know, my girlfriend's my nurse, they're like, Hey, you know, <laughs> we can release them. Uh, as long as you take care of them and everything, she's like, yeah, I'll take care of them. You know, I know what to do and everything. So, uh, this, this sounds kind of dumb, but I just, I just didn't want to be at the hospital. Uh, I made a promise to my kids. Oh, That I would go home every night, so I didn't want to be at the hospital. So I, that's why I wanted to leave. Sure, sure. So let's talk about that. You, uh, you get home. I mean, uh, talk, how old are your children, or how old were they at the I time? Got Nineteen. At the time, I had a. She was seventeen and uh, eleven. And they're both living at home. Yes. And this is around uh, COVID and everything. So they were at home doing like homeschooling stuff. Mm -hmm. And how did, how did you break it to them? So my, my oldest was uh, the very first person I called. Like I, I was telling you, you know, like I was just trying to be calm, you know, I didn't want to like freak her out or anything. I was like, Hey, you know, her name's Mariah. I was like, Hey Mariah, I got injured at work. Uh, don't worry about it. You know, uh, I'm okay. It's nothing major. Uh, I'll see you tonight. She's like, okay. You know, like, I'm glad you're all right. So that was like our uh, our conversation. You know, I, I didn't tell her exactly what happened or anything. I just told her I was in the hospital. I was injured. Uh, the thing that really sucked about my incident is it was someone that was filming it uh, when I did the pit maneuver. I don't know if you ever saw that one, Randy, but there was a construction workers outside on the frontage road and this guy was live streaming it like on Facebook or something 
So a lot of people saw it, and, and I'm the only police officer that drives a Camaro, so everybody knew it was me involved in the shooting. And my kid's mom actually saw uh, all this go, going down. Uh, her coworkers like, hey, you know, uh, police officer uh, just got shot um, and killed. So they show her the video, and it's you know a video of my cop, my cop car and stuff. So she's freaking out. Uh, she's panicking and stuff. So she calls my daughter and she's like, "Hey, like your dad just got killed at work." Oh no! And she's like, "No, no." She's like, "She's like, I just talked to dad. Like he's he's alright, but I don't think she can process everything because she was like in shock." And she's like, "No, like your dad just got killed. I just saw the video." So my daughter starts freaking out now. She's like, "No, <laughs> like I just talked to him like a minute ago." So like my daughter's all confused now. So then, uh, yeah. Uh, some of my coworkers went to go get my mom from work. So my mom starts calling people, and uh, that's when they, they tell my kid's mom that uh, which hospital I was at. So she calls my kids back and says, hey, you know, like, meet me at uh, at the hospital uh, on Telshore at MMC, and uh, your dad's over there. He got shot. So, like, now my kids are freaking out because now they know, like, exactly like, what happened and everything. And my... I felt really bad for my little one because uh, she had like no idea what was going on. You know, she was just doing her her work uh, on the computer for school, and my oldest just tells her, "Hey, uh, we got to go to the hospital real quick. You know, get ready." So she drives to the hospital, and you know, my uh, my little one thought she had like a doctor's appointment or something, but she walks in and you know sees me full of blood and everything, and she just starts freaking out. Mm. All right, so let let's talk about. Let's talk about the the aftermath of this. The um, the describe the what happened as far as the um, investigation of the shooting. So it, it was difficult um, right afterwards because you know you're involved in a shooting and they don't tell you anything what's going on. So I was really confused exactly how everything went down. You know, pretty much all the information that I was getting is everything that I was hearing on um, on the news. You know, I, I knew uh, Officer Darian Jared had been killed, but I didn't know exactly like what happened, what was the circumstances or anything. And until like a couple of months later, I found out that it was a, an HSI case. Uh, they were watching the suspect and they, they wanted a state police officer to pull him over. Um, because they knew he had a bunch of uh, fentanyl pills with him. He had like 4,000 fentanyl pills. He was a convicted felon, um, had a handgun and a rifle, a bunch of ammunition, but they failed to give that information to the state police officer. So he oh, pulled him no. over not knowing that, you know, this guy's like a convicted felon. He's got, he's got guns and, you know, he didn't know any of that stuff. So, you know, he came up with his own probable cause to pull him over. Uh, he pulled him over for the window tint. You know, it was too dark. It was like five percent. So he pulls him over. As soon as the suspect gets out of the vehicle, he comes out with the rifle and shoots uh, Officer Jared. I believe like seven times. You know, in the chest, uh, shoots him in the head. And when Officer Jared falls on the ground, uh, the suspect comes around and actually uh, does like an execution shot. He shoots him in the back of the head. Wow! Jumps back in the vehicle and uh jumps back or gets back in his truck and that's when he starts headed eastbound on, on i-10 and hsi was watching the whole incident down the street what what is hsi uh homeland security so so the feds 
the feds never told this trooper what he was stopping? No, never told him. Is there a lawsuit going on about that now? So there, there was a lawsuit from what I heard is it got dismissed. Wow. Uh, the best way I can describe it from what the attorneys told me is uh, when you're like a police officer or a firefighter, you know, you get involved in a situation like this, you're knowingly, you, you know that you're going to be in danger. There's a possibility you can get killed or injured. So it's pretty much, you know, it, it's on us. So regardless of you know, who's at fault or what happened, uh, that agency isn't at fault. Wow, that's, that, that's pretty disturbing. That's pretty disturbing. It is. Right. When I heard that, I... Yeah. So how, so you know, you're armed with that information, too. And, and all of that has an effect emotionally. I mean, y you have now been shot. You're going through the process of the investigation. How are you coping with this emotionally at this time? At, at, this, at, the, at this moment yeah. where you're trying to figure out everything that's going on? Um, I wasn't really coping with it. Um, I was just keeping everything in. Um, the, the biggest mistake I made was keeping everything to myself. You know, I wasn't telling my girlfriend anything. I wasn't telling my family anything. Uh, everything that I was going through, I was just like kind of storing it inside them knowing that I was in pain. I didn't want them knowing that I was being like, you know, bothered and you know, all this stuff was really affecting me. And I think that was like a huge, uh, uh, thing for me that, that I should have done a lot better is just, uh, talk to somebody, tell them exactly like what I was going through, what I was feeling, you know, like all, all this time I thought I was just trying to protect my family, not letting them know exactly like that I was suffering and, you know, just had like all these emotions. I was like, I was up and down. And I was pissed off one minute, super sad the next minute, back to happy again, and pissed off again. It was just, uh, it was just a roller coaster every day. And like I was, like mentally, I was just exhausted. It would be like four or five in the afternoon, and like I was ready for bed. It, it's hard to describe. What did you now? Now that you're you're on the other side of the of the fence of this. You've, you know, you've had a couple years to process everything. You have educated yourself as well. What did, what, what did you learn about yourself and about um, what you were experiencing? First of all, what, what are those the symptoms of? The PTSD and stuff. Post, right. So yeah, post-traumatic yeah. stress injury is what many, many police officers deal with. And like, like you suffer in silence when that is exactly the opposite of of what you needed so you yeah. you negotiated this by yourself now at some point did you actually get some help and talk to some people that that were that were beneficial for you um it actually took quite a while i would say like a, a year after my incident it's kind of like when my when i realized like what i was doing wasn't the, the right thing and when I went to your, uh, the Wounded Blues Summit, like hearing people's stories and everything, that's what opened my eyes. Um, I was like, man, like I, I gotta communicate with somebody. I gotta do something about it. Cause like so, hearing some of their stories, like it was what I was feeling. I was like, man, you know, like this isn't healthy for me. It's not healthy for my family. It's not healthy for my kids. And you know, it's putting a big strain on my relationship too. Cause keeping everything in, 
So after that, that conference that, that I went with you there in um, Indianapolis is when I finally like, opened up to my girlfriend. I started seeing uh, a counselor. Uh, I tried EMDR and I tried a lot of different stuff. And you know, I was starting to feel a, a lot better afterwards. I noticed like my mood was a lot better. Stress was a lot better. Sleep was a lot better. Uh, just my attitude in general was a lot better. Relationship with my kids, everybody was starting to improve. I mean, it, it wasn't fixed, but it was definitely improving. And and I think that, that the, the, the huge takeaway here is that um, you isolated yourself and many, many law enforcement officers who have experienced trauma doesn't even have to be as dramatic as something where you're personally grievously injured. But, you know, yeah. now now that you you you're armed with a lot more knowledge and information now you see that that many officers, this is the way they deal with it. They think that they're protecting their families. They think that they're protecting yeah. their loved ones by, by not talking about it when you've learned yeah. the valuable lesson that it's just the opposite. Yeah. Yeah, so, it, was, it was just a huge wake up call. Yeah. So to, now you're, it's been now been a couple of years. You were, of course, cleared um, during the investigative process. How long did that investigative process take? Um, it took a, a year and a half for me to get cleared. It was quite a while. And how about your injuries? At what point did you? Uh, because you know, many officers once they're injured, that's it. They don't ever. They don't ever come back to work. But you wanted to come back to work. Yeah, um, the biggest thing for me is uh, I got I, I wasn't ready to retire because like, I'm already at the end of my career and stuff, and I just didn't want that being my last day of work. You know, I didn't want my kids remembering like, oh, like Dad's last day of work, he got shot. You know, I want to mm -hmm. go out on my own terms. So that was to me, it was huge uh, to get healthy again, to be back in uniform, like serving my community, be back with my friends and everything. I wasn't ready for retirement or just going out, going out that way. But it took 22 months for me to finally get cleared by the doctor and uh, return back to work. I still haven't made like 100% recovery or anything. I mean, I'm still dealing with a lot of stuff, but you know, it's a slow process. So I'll get there eventually. Well, I the fact that you you were physically able to was because of your hard work. I mean, you didn't sit, you didn't sit back and, and wait for yourself to heal. Did you? No, no, I was stubborn. I was out there <laughs> working my ass off trying to get, get healthy again. What advice would you give to law enforcement officers who, um, have experienced trauma, either physical trauma or, um, you know, you you have you've now been exposed to psychological trauma as well, um, you know, by coming to the law enforcement survival summit. But, so let's talk about that. How did how did the summit, um, which you you came to see in Indiana, how did that affect you? Um, it affected me in a huge way. Um, just hearing people's stories because I knew like. I wasn't, the, I'm not the only person experiencing this type of stuff. Uh, 
a lot of you know people. It, it was different situations. You know, officers that got ran over. You know, you know they were they were injured, but it wasn't um, could be because of a shooting. But we experienced the same type of stuff, and you know what they were saying about like the relationships, relationship with their kids, and how it hurt them and everything. And um, so it just made me realize, you know, I'm not alone. It was like so many people that I can talk to and. You know, I met a lot of people there too, and I got their information and stuff. They say, hey, you know, if you ever need to talk, you know, I know what you're going through. You can get through this. Reach out to me at any time or anything. But, so you, uh, you you had the opportunity to talk to people from the Wounded Blue. Uh, yeah. And uh, what what are your feelings about the Wounded Blue? Let's talk about what how how that organization has helped you. Uh, I think it's amazing. You know, like the the type of stuff that you guys do for police officers. And um, the stuff that you guys do for police officers and, um, you know, just offer, you know, counseling, offer like any type of uh, resources out there for the for the cops. I think it's amazing because, you know, most people don't know that this stuff exists or there's help out there. You know, they, they always think they're alone and just deal with it by themselves. Exactly. Well, you know what? You you are you're the you're a poster child for the wounded blue, <laughs> and so yeah. would you would you recommend that uh, every cop you know goes to the National Law Enforcement Survival Summit that we hold? Oh yeah, for sure. You know it, it's good to know like all these resources are out there. You know if you ever do get involved in something or um, it doesn't matter if it's something like mine. You know just any type of. Um, bad incident that happens at work, you know, there's, there's always someone out there that can help you out or got to the same type of scenario as you, the same type of situation. And we can all help each other out. Well, you know, um, now that you're, you're on the other side of the, of the, of this experience, um, your, your experience, you're now sharing with other people because I know yeah. that from our conversation, you know that by being uh, by being open and honest about what took place with you, that you might be able to change the trajectory of other people's experiences and their lives as well. So yeah. how how so you're you're um, beginning to speak about this publicly? How can people contact you uh, in order to get uh, the opportunity to? bring you over to their agency or their organization so i don't have any social media or anything but i mean they can reach out to you're, the, Los you're the smartest Department. cop you're the smartest cop i know <laughs> no social <Yeah>. media <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i don't i don't like any of that stuff you know i kind of just like being left alone but i mean right now you know it's a little bit different you know i i want to reach out and help people i just want to show people like not not to do the mistakes that, that i made I'm just kind of going back to like the question that um, he asked me earlier, like uh, what have I learned from this or like what, uh, what advice do I have? Um, the biggest thing for me that I knew I screwed up on is I was so consumed with getting physically better as far as like my body and like, getting back into shape. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm really big into like working out. I do marathons and everything. So I was so focused on that that I neg neglected my, uh, my mental health. Right, and that was like a huge—that was a huge problem that that I know I screwed up on, and 
not it, it took me like over a year to figure that out and now it's like you know like i was so also um focused on just the getting strong again you know like deadlifting heavy weights squatting you know right just just trying to show my friends you know like i'm still the same adrian you know like i haven't you know, bullet didn't stop me or anything but I, w- I was so busy on that stuff that i neglected my mental health and you know it, it, it took a big toll like on my family and myself and that's something i'm still trying to fix now and i'm, I'm pretty sure if i would have started since day one i'd probably be in a lot better place right now Gotcha. Well, we, we've run out of time, Adrian. Thank you so much okay. for taking the time to join me here at the Wounded Blue Hour. Uh, you are a uh, an example of, of victory when it comes down to dealing with a, a physical, emotional injury and coming back on the other side. So thanks so much, Adrian De La Garza. Thank you, Randy, for having Las, me on. Las Cruces Police. Thanks again. We'll talk soon. Well, we've run up against the time, so I'm going to ask you to do this. Go to thewoundedblue.org, thewoundedblue.org, and donate what you can to this organization. They are funded only by donations, and the men and women of the law enforcement community need heroes like you to help them. Randy Sutton, we'll see you again next week.